Prize Box Wednesday, we dip into the record bin and we pull out Yacht Rock Classic, as it's known. You're out on your yacht, enjoying some smooth music, maybe an espresso. And what do you have on? You have this on, of course. What a fool believes the Doobie Brothers and the amazing, amazing voice of Michael McDonald. Said one critic, Michael McDonald's voice is nothing less than a gift from whoever created this universe. I could listen to him sing Gregorian chant, nursery rhymes, Tuvan throat singing, or a complete reading of the New York City Registry of Deeds. Nothing like Michael McDonald's voice, eh, Steve? Are you loving this? Touch bland for me, to be honest. Are you lo- you're cutting today, aren't you? You're quite cutting. Yeah, turn it up. <laughs> yeah, drown me out. A touch of bland. Gosh, Georgie, listen to that. <laughs> you'd, li- you'd have the album, wouldn't you? Well, look, I don't have the album. Georgie? No, I don't. But do the brothers, do they do the take me in your arms, the rock me song? I don't know. Who knows? I'm pretty sure um, that's do- That's my mm, favourite Doobie yeah. Brothers song. Uh, anyway. big, uh, a big response regarding coffee, of course. Um, and uh, they love Maureen. She is a legend. They don't like me <laughs> or Georgie. Pack of tosses. You aren't their guest. <laughs> uh, instant, they never like me. Yeah, instant coffee. <laughs> I like you, yours, or, Yes, I do, I do too. You're utter snobs. Um, uh, someone says, though, calling instant coffee is like, <laughs> is like calling Coke cola wine. Um I am so pleased that I love my instant coffee. If I were to drink any other coffee, I would not have been able to afford my recent trip to the family uh, to visit in the UK like Maureen. Another one here, we make a plunger most of the time, but we do like uh, the instant coffee uh, as well. The panel, RNZ National. Now, vendors may need to adjust to a faster-paced decline in property values. The latest CoreLogic research shows almost 3% of properties were sold at a loss in the three months to September, compared with nearly 1% in the fourth quarter of 2021. There's a prediction that up to a quarter of residential property listings will sell at a loss if mortgage rates continue the upward trajectory and unemployment does pick up. Nick Goodall is head of research at CoreLogic. Kia ora, Nick. Up to a quarter of residential property listings to sell at a loss. Uh, you know, again, prediction, but it wouldn't be what a lot of us would want to hear, Nick. No, absolutely not. I mean, for many people that have entered the market, you do not want, do not want to have to sell your property at less than you paid for it. But I suppose that figure, we've only come about because that's something we've seen historically. Um, you know, in the early 2000s, up to a quarter of all resales were sold at a loss. In the GFC, it was around about 20%. So, you know, the trajectory's a long way from there, but I suppose you could say it's the early days and we could be hitting that way if the downturn continues, um, you know, for a lot longer at the similar rates what we're seeing recently. Indeed. So the softer performance of property resales, is that, what, across the country, Nick, or...? It is very much so. Um, there are a few, there are a few areas where we're seeing it worse than others. As per usual, this is according to valid you know pieces of data as well. It's it's those areas that we've seen the greater fall. So Wellington certainly seeing a bit more pain than others. Um, Dunedin as well as up there. So look, it is happening across the country, but there are a couple of centres that are seeing it more than others. Uh, such as uh, Wellington and Dunedin are probably the main two that that jump out to me. All right, all right. Georgie. Yes, well, I'm in Wellington, and I I bought a house a couple of years ago, and it's certainly not what one wants to hear. But I mean, arguably, we 
paid too much for homes and we sold them for too much as well. Um, mm. And I think that whenever we are in these sorts of these cycles, and they are cycles, it's not the first time mm. the sky's not falling, you know, the sky's not falling down. Um, but basically, I think you always have to remember that you have the home-owning classes in New Zealand and then you have those who can't even get on the ladder. And we always expect, and rightly so, that the home-owning classes might face a bit more burden in in the next few years, right? Like, if everyone thinks just about their own back pockets, we're never going to get anything sorted. Fair enough. Uh, uh, George, stay there, Nick. Let's bring Stephen. Well, let's do, let, let's do a slightly, I realise, um, reductive approach to this. But I, I can see essentially three categories of, of person who are involved in this. First of all, you've got the people who bought to sell. And, and frankly, they're the ones who have driven the house, price mar- the house price market up so much that many people can't afford to buy anymore. So I've got no sympathy for them whatsoever. The value of your investments may go down as well as, as, well as up. They went down. Maybe people can actually afford to buy homes now for a change. Too bad. Same goes, goes for landlords. You have been making a lot of money for a very long time off people who can't afford to buy their own houses. That's a shame. But then the other category would possibly be people who bought to live and now have to move on. Even those guys, at least they've not been flinging money at landlords. At least they've actually had an ownership stake in their property for all this time. And so they're not they're not making out as badly as the people who have simply been paying rent all this time. We need to move away from the idea of, of houses as investments. Houses are where people live. Yeah, these, these, are people, we'll, these are people who uh, own a home and they've saved up for their hard-earned money often. And uh, yeah. it's, their, it's their one asset. Yes, and, and how often and, and over what? period have these houses lost value my, I, I bought my house 10 years ago it's increased in value sure, significantly since then yeah. if i i'm not going to sell it because that's i'm exactly the kind of person you just mentioned and i'm living in that house it's not my investment it's my home the people who are li- losing out here are the people who are treating other people's homes as investments and those people I have limited they, sympathy for yeah just on that i mean uh, uh, most vendors are still getting a profit from what they originally paid. So that's the backdrop, of course, to this as well, Nick. A significant majority, yeah. You're still, yeah. What are you looking at? 97% of people are still um, selling it again. It's just that that percentage is lifted from, you know, the depths of 1% of, of, of sales selling at a loss to 3%. It is a bit more in some of those centres, Auckland included, you know, 5 or 6% now selling at a loss. Um, and it's an important distinction when you look at, as you say, owner-occupier or an investor and also the length of time that they're holding. When they're holding and selling at a loss, they've generally only held it for a year or two, whereas when you're selling it again, you've probably held it for seven or eight years. Um, but the proportion between investors and owner-occupiers is relatively consistent. But the more important thing is when you bought that property and when you and then selling it last quarter, you know, if you held it for a very short period of time, maybe you have had a change in your financial situation, those are the people that are taking the hit. Um, and, of course, it sucks for those people, but they are a very small proportion of the market right now, so it's not happening across the board, not okay. at all. Okay, no, good good context there, uh, Nick. Are these particular conditions, uh, I mean, conducive to... I don't know, people looking to jump into their first house because there are there there is quite a bit of stuff in there in the price there, you know. Or are they conducive to people who want to try out their first investment property should they be in position to buy one? 
I, I think that it's more beneficial for a, a first-home buyer who's looking to hold long-term and yeah. maybe can handle a, a short-term drop in prices. Of course, the other consideration for them is you know, what's happening to mortgage rates at the moment. So you know, if you can pass the bank serviceability tests and secure that mortgage right now, as long as you're prepared that in the future your interest rate might go up, uh, we're hopefully nearer the end of that cycle, but still might go up in the future. Can you bear that, that increased cost? That's certainly a consideration. But the short-term drop or even medium-term drop in price shouldn't affect them too much, whereas for an investor, you know, things are a bit different now, especially a new-time investor. It is harder. You can't write off your um, interest costs, and those interest costs are increasing, and you haven't seen that capital gain short-term, plus rents aren't, aren't increasing at the same rate either. So the yield on an investment property right now is certainly not what it was, and while capital gains aren't there either, it does make it harder to justify that purchase for an investor, especially if you look at other investment types. You know, you can, you're starting to get 4-plus four, four percent in term deposits again now, which is not a bad yield considering your money's just sitting in the bank. So, yeah, the consideration for other investments are certainly going to be at the forefront now too. All right, Nick, thanks for that. I uh, appreciate you being on the program. That's Nick Goodall, the head of research at CoreLogic. I just wanted to jump to Georgie, actually. Wellington has really seen, um, it's been quite a journey in house prices over the last few years, hasn't it there? went mental. I Did cannot it? believe how much Did you're it? paying for, for like for, for houses that were cold and mouldy, like genuinely. Um, so there, there had to be, the bottom sort of did need to fall out. I mean, and what we pay in rents in Wellington is, is absolutely absurd as mm. well, especially because of the housing stock. It's really poor. Look, for years we have been told that market forces have to be listened to and the market is always right and the market will always correct itself. Well, guess what, folks? The market is speaking and the market's <laughs> what driving these prices down. You reaped. Guess what, folks? It's time to sow. You preach there, Steve. Very good. Steve McCabe and um, Georgie Stiliano with me on the panel. Thank you for your feedback this afternoon. Wonderful stuff. Uh, and... Um, including the coffee, we'll try and get back to that. And I do want to actually come back to the notion that instant coffee was invented in Chicago. Got to come back to that. 15 to 5, the panel. Rising wages are pushing people into bigger tax brackets, and that means you'll pay more tax, of course, and that means any real effect of that increase will be dampened by that rising cost of living. And that has got some people thinking about a tax-free threshold. This is under which a certain amount of income would not be subject to any tax. Other countries have this. New Zealand does not. So is it time we looked at it? With us is Robin Walker, a partner within within the tax team at Deloitte in New Zealand. Kia ora, Robin. Good afternoon. Yeah, I see in Australia, for example, I was looking at Australia, so they have up to a near... 20,000 New Zealand dollars, your first 20K not taxed. UK, you can have up to $24,000 New Zealand a year before they start paying income tax. Here, you pay from the first dollar. Do we need to change it? Uh, well, I mean, that's a good question. It's always one that uh, plenty of people have opinions about, and mm. there's definitely lots of people around that, that think that a tax free threshold uh, is a good idea. So we do have precedents in other countries where they do choose to do that. Other examples are France and, right. and Singapore. But there's also lots of other countries that don't have that threshold just like we do. Um, and probably the, the main sticking point from a New Zealand standpoint is just how much it costs if you are giving a tax-free 
threshold to everybody. Um, what would the cost be? So if, if, um, if for the, all the listeners out there that have time on their hands that want to, to have a bit of a play around, if you go to the Treasury website, and you just search for aggregate personal income tax revenue estimate tool, you actually get to the spreadsheet uh, where you can put in whatever marginal tax rates you want and you can see uh, what will happen to the tax collected. So our our current lowest tax rate goes from zero to $14,000. And so if we take out that uh, 10.5% tax rate and change that to zero on the spreadsheet... Uh, that actually uh, it shows you immediately what happens to all the tax collected and what happens is that taxes, if there's no other changes, will go down by $4.7 billion. So <laughs> that's, that's the cost of giving this tax Okay, free so it's a fair whack. So it's, it's a right. ginormous amount. Like if we think about all the billions that were spent on, on the wage subsidy and, and, and that sort of thing, it's... It's very unusual to have a tax change that you would be spending $4.7 billion on. It's a ginormous amount of money, but for each individual person, it's you know a relatively small amount of money. So you're giving you know just over $1,000 to everybody. Um, so sort of my perspective on it would be more like be more targeted with your changes to tax rates to say, well, who do we actually want to benefit? Do we want five million people to benefit, whatever the number of taxpayers in the spreadsheet are, uh, or do we just want a smaller por- a portion that can potentially benefit by a greater amount? Um, and so if we can do something within the tax rates and the bans or with independent like earner credits or doing something with working for families, you can target giving more to a smaller proportion. Okay, so back to that target notion again. So not such a fan yeah. of um, the, the first 20 or so thousand dollars uh, untaxed. Shall we go on the panel on this one and see what they think of this? Georgie. I have two points I'd like to make. The, the mm. first one is I think we struggle in New Zealand to have a mature debate around tax full stop, and that needs to change because whenever we have Minister Parker recently alluded to the idea of a wealth tax and opposition jumped on it and it became a political football and it was horrific and he essentially had to uh, was told to be quiet and, and go to a corner almost so that's something that we we need to address and and secondly you've just talked robin about the cost of doing a tax-free threshold and obviously it is huge surprisingly and this isn't getting picked up in any media coverage the opportunities party has a policy that is fiscally neutral according to them, that you do a, I think it's up to 15k tax-free threshold, and in exchange you would do a 0.75% uh, land value tax on anyone that owns property. So there are ways of, of, of putting these um, bold changes in place, but until we're actually willing to have bold conversations, I don't really see much happening. All right. Uh, look, stay there, Robin. Let's get uh, um, Stephen. You can respond. I mean, George is absolutely right. We don't we don't talk about tax in this country in a healthy way. As, as, as uh, I think it's Shamabili Cup has been pointing out in the past, taxes love. This is how we actually um, 
demonstrate Kaitiakitanga and Maneakitanga for our fellow countrymen. That's what we need to be doing. But it's interesting that this is finally being brought up now because uh, I was actually I raised this suggestion on this very program back in March, and finally the, the the idea is time has come. This is what we need to be doing. So all we need to do is is shift the tax burden around the tax scales, whack up the higher levels of of uh, tax, so that the people who are making least aren't the ones who are carrying the heaviest burden relative to their take home pay. So if you're only making a small amount of money, let people keep that. They need that money more. Raise the higher tax rates. Those are the people who can afford to to to, um, to pay more, and they're probably the people who are making money off the people who are making the least. So how about we shift the tax burden up the pay scale? Shifting the, the burden there. Robin, do you want to comment uh, on what they have both said? Oh, I totally agree that tax rates need a look at. Um, I think probably the area that needs the greatest attention is probably those people that earn between 48000 and 70000 uh, and then that move from going being on a 17.5% tax rate and jump straight into a 30% tax rate. All of those middle earners, they're being taxed a huge amount too much uh, in, in a lot of people's opinions. And so I definitely agree that all of the tax rates need to be looked at and to evaluate what is an appropriate amount of tax for all of these people to be paying. Very good to have you on the programme, Robin Kiora. That's Robin Walker, partner within the tax team at Deloitte in New Zealand. Oh, can I just remind you, everyone, look at what we really need to do is scrap tax on earned income, start taxing passive wealth right. instead. That's the answer. Good on you, Steve. Now, eight to five, the panel, this really got me interested. New Zealand's first uh, offshore wind farm may begin construction by 2030, pending adjustment to its regulatory settings. The first lot would be off the coast of Taranaki. 60 turbines in this 900 megawatt development. That's 300 more megawatts than generated right now by our 17 land-based wind farms. Get this. Some of these turbines could be as high as the Sky Tower, if we believe that, 328 metres higher. That is higher than the Alpha Tower, in fact. With us is Sustainable Energy Expert Professor Emeritus Ralph Sims from Massey University. Professor Sims, welcome. Kia ora, Wallace, and hi, Steve from Manchester, and hi, Georgie, in your car. <laughs> hey, what, mate? <laughs> Good on you, Ralph. Kia ora. Now, look, what do you make of these offshore wind farms? Well, there's quite a few around the world already. They've had them in Scotland for 20 years and Netherlands and Denmark and the biggest yeah. one in, and it's off the coast of England. Right. And so they're not new from that point of view. And, and it is an exciting proposition and the turbines are getting bigger, as you say. I think the Sky Tower and the Eiffel Tower are actually fairly similar in yes. height. And so these would compare with that. But I think what we've got to remember in New Zealand is we've got another 2,000 megawatts. You said 600 megawatts or thereabouts of wind turbines mm. now. There's another 2,000 of consented wind farm sites on land in New Zealand. Wow. And they're cheaper to build than offshore. Okay. So this will take 10 years, but we're going to get more wind anyway. So what's the difference then between onshore and offshore? I mean, these sound like mega construction prog- projects offshore, Ralph. 
Yeah, well, it's quite an interesting comparison because in the likes of the North Sea, they do get more wind offshore yeah. than onshore. In New Zealand, we're a bit different. We get world wind records. Our wind turbines don't have any subsidies. You take one of our wind turbines and put it into Denmark or Scotland, it would produce three times the electricity that uh, it, it produces over there, simply because we're a windy country. Mm. So therefore, the benefits of going offshore to get more wind aren't as good necessarily as having wind farms on land. So is it is it simply nimbyism that people just don't want these things in, in their eye line and they just want them offshore where they can't see them? That's certainly the case if you lived in Manchester you'd know that, but you know, it's much more densely populated country in the UK and in northern Europe. Um, where we've still got sites where people... Uh, I'm looking out my window in Palmerston North now at the brand-new Mercury wind farm, <laughs> and it's a wonderful sight to see. <laughs> I love it. Turning away in the blue sky behind them. So. I just absolutely love wind farms. I, I, I find them like modern sculptors, Ralph, and I cannot understand why people... Because it has been an issue. It has been an issue, an issue in the South Island. Georgie, what about you? I remember when I worked for the... Enterprises Minister. I went down to Meridian and I was just getting a bit of a um, look behind the scenes and how it all works. And there was this big uh, panel up on one wall with all these flashing red dots. And I said to this guy, what's all this? He said, that's all of our turbines that are offline because of faults. But often, this is in Wellington, it was too windy. It would actually cause the turbine to, to fault. So there must be there must have been some significant advances in those five years um, Professor, or is it Ralph? simply that? Yeah. No, wind turbines in New Zealand work at what's called a capacity factor for over 50% of the time they're producing power on average. And certainly they shut down in strong winds from a safety point of view and protect them, and they don't operate in, in light winds. And so there is this ideal operating space. This is a problem with having one large wind farm offshore. If it's windy, very windy one day and they're fully producing 900 megawatts and the next day it's not windy at all, then the electricity system of New Zealand has to balance for that non-windy day. And that's something that they'll have to incorporate as they build and design mm. this. Just project. amazing. Such amazing. Tip. I'd love to hear from you, uh, listeners. What do you make of wind farms? 2101 email the panel at rnz.co.nz. In terms of the power it'll generate, give us an idea of how much a, a farm like this, Ralph, would generate. Well, um, uh, they're talking of 24,000 homes, I think. It's always difficult to measure those sort of things. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, all the wind farms in New Zealand, 600 megawatts, are producing 6 or 7% of our total electricity. This farm would be producing something like 9 or 10%, uh, the, the one offshore, the 900 megawatt one. But there's also a 1,400 megawatt one being announced further north off the Waikato coast, and that would be double our existing nice. capacity. And, and just just to make the point, I mean, this is clean, renewable, effectively free energy that we're harnessing here, isn't it? Well, it's free from the point of the, the wind keeps blowing. Exactly. There is a cost in building the yeah. wind turbines, of course, and it is far more expensive to build offshore than it is to build onshore, simply because of the logistics. And we're talking 20, 30 kilometres offshore, and they've either got to be piled into the ocean bed or tethered. These uh, ones are probably 20 metres, 30 metres of water, so they'll probably be on piles. But there is a fairly large cost in doing that, of course. Always had a dream, Ralph, of actually getting up close to a wind turbine. I'm really fascinated by them. They're magnificent, magnificent structures, aren't they? 
I've climbed up inside one, one of the ones at the Meridian Tiapity wind farm wow. under construction. 187 steps, we climbed up a ladder <laughs> to get up there, you were tethered on, and then climbed out onto the roof of the what's called the nacelle. And the nacelle, the square box at the top, is the equivalent size of somebody's lounge. I mean, these, these are big machines. That's sure. my dream, Ralph. We've got to move it on there, but uh, kia ora to you. That's Professor Ralph Sims on uh, wind farms and Steve McCabe, Georgia Soliano. You've both been wonderful. Cheers, mate. Thanks Thank a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. Going out with some doobies. I'm Wallace Chapman. 3.40 tomorrow. Checkpoint is next.